Out of Tonzilla Files, welcome to another episode of Escaping the Cave, the Tonzilla X Pod. Once was, maybe once again, someday. Hi. I'm your congenial host, Todd. If you've listened to this podcast for the last few years, you know how friendly I am. <laughs> Thank you ever so much for clicking in. Thanks for the downloads the last couple of weeks, surprisingly. We're taking what, uh, February to. August? What is that? <laughs> six months? Yeah, after taking six months off. Looking pretty good. Got some new listeners out there, thanks. I have these weird locales. I get all the uh, analytics and stuff from Podbean, my podcast provider. I wouldn't call them consistent. They're not the same thing every week. But every now and then, somebody pops up in a new spot and downloads everything doesn't happen very often because I think this is episode number 127. <laughs> Thanks. So anyway, record date on this one is August 28th of 2023. If you're listening down the road a ways, maybe you're one of these folks in a couple of years who have downloaded all the episodes. Hello there from the past. Back from camping. Been a couple of weeks since I've recorded. I know I've re- released a few episodes in the last uh, couple of weeks, but uh, yeah, back from the uh, great Northern wilderness of Michigan, the Upper Peninsula, was fantastic. Kind of explored uh, a lot of the area around Mutasing and Marquette. Got to Grand Marais. <laughs> it's so hard to find camping up there. As all the people from the uh, Lower Peninsula, they, they like to go up there and get away from everything down here. It's nice. And so it's hard if you haven't planned your trip well in advance to get camping up that way. We didn't really realize that. Anyway, we're trying to find a, a campground. The last night we were up there, I guess, it would have been last uh, Saturday. <laughs> Couldn't find anything. We're going to all these national parks. Everything's booked up. And uh, we go to Grand Marais. We think we're going to head off to uh, Lake Superior State Park, just east of Grand Marais, right on Lake Superior. Looking at the map, I mean, it just butts up against it. It's impossible that this campground's going to suck. <laughs> it just isn't going to happen. Well, we get up there, and uh, and we find a campsite in town. They have this uh, park set up right in town. People in tents. There's people at RVs, everything in between. I don't know why, really, but it reminded me of Grapes of Wrath for some reason. <laughs> and we almost stayed there. We were right on it. We, we found a spot. We could have just went, went and thrown our tent up. I had the drone with me. I had the camera with me. It started taking some... Uh, uh, actual real pictures with a real camera equipment for the first time in, I don't know, almost a year. We almost did it. But we were thinking about that uh, Lake Superior State Park. We figured, you know what? They have first come, first serve sites. It's just down the road a little ways. Let's try that. And uh, found out that the the road between Grand Marais and Lake Superior State Park closed. 90-mile detour. Yeah, not a lot of roads through those forests up there. So you have to go out of the way around everything to get back up there. It's like, you know what? Screw it. We're just going to go back. We have, uh, she had family camping in uh, Mackinac City. And we're like, you know what? Let's just go back there. And uh, we'll, we'll check this out maybe later, maybe next year or something like that. And I'm kind of regretting it. Because I, I kind of wish we had just gone back to Grand Marais, and set up in that park because this is this town reminds me of something you'd find in Backwoods, Maine, on the coast, right up against Lake Superior, maybe Oregon. This little tiny town, maybe 1,500 people, maybe 2,000 people is what it looked like to me anyway. 
right there on the lake with that campground. I could have set it up. I would have had time to take the drone up. Got some fantastic video with that drone while we're up there, at least around Mackinac City. And I had it with me and I could have taken it. Oh, I'm just like, I'm kind of kicking myself in the head now. Gives me something, I guess, to do later on. People here in Michigan know about the Upper Peninsula. It's not, you know, it's not one of those closely guarded secrets. <laughs> Everybody knows, but it's just such a, it's such a task to get up there because it's at least, I want to say it's five hours maybe to St. Ignace, which is right on the other side of uh, the Mackinac Bridge, four or five hours. And then you've got two-lane highways, no interstates up there, hardly any cell service. You're lucky if you've got a bar of LTE most of the time. It's kind of a project to get up there. You're involved if you're going to the Upper Peninsula and you're spending any kind of time. And good luck, like I said, good luck getting a campsite <laughs> at the last minute. Did do pictured rocks while we we're up there. The wife wanted to do that. That was on her bucket list of things she wanted to see when we moved back here, when we got up to uh, uh, the Upper Peninsula. She really wanted to do that. So we went and did the, bo the boat tour and uh, found some hiking campgrounds. You could see them from the boat, like these people who had hiked, I don't know how far. Uh, but they were camped right on this beach, right on Lake Superior. It was amazing. I saw that, man, I'll tell you. <sighs> She's not as into the uh, rustic camping as I am. I mean, she'd do it if she didn't have to do much. But I saw that. I'm like, oh, I got to do this. I got to do this. <laughs> so, yeah, that wetted my whistle. A little bit. Never been up there. I had been up there one other time before 2021. We went up to uh, Mackinac again. And then made a trip up to Whitefish Point, which is kind of near where the Edmund Fitzgerald went down. If you're familiar with the song. Well, that's Whitefish Point. We went up there. To Quamadon Falls a couple of years ago, but that was the only time that I had been up there outside of a quick trip just straight into Sault Ste. Marie and back, I guess, in the late 90s. I'm hooked. Anyway, that was the adventure. It's been a couple of weeks since I've uh, recorded anything. I did release, like I said, I think three episodes. Tons of video clips are coming out of these things. Um, this seems to work pretty well. A video for YouTube for the Facebook page, just sort of highlights. I should have started doing, I did start doing it a couple of years ago. I wasn't really into it, but I wish I had started doing this a lot sooner uh, because I think it's going to be a very useful way for me to share ideas without asking people to, to go listen to a full hour, two hour episode of the podcast, uh, especially from uh, the stuff clear back in 2019. Go check out the YouTube page, uh, the Escaping the Cave page on Facebook. I upload the video clips. I've just started doing that. There's not very many there. I I really hate Facebook a lot. <laughs> I do. Uh, but I'm caught. Because I, I, I feel like I should be uploading this stuff to that page just in case. You know, they have reels now. The, the Facebook sort of... This needs to be its own topic at some point because Facebook has switched to video. It's starting to kind of uh, channel TikTok, I guess. I don't know, competitive changes. They're getting their asses kicked by that platform. So, you know, they're going to video. So Facebook's become less of an interactive platform, it seems like, in the last couple of years. So if it's more video, I'd be kind of an idiot not to be uploading at least a few reels and these longer form videos that might find their way into 
other people's devices, people's devices who have not already found the podcast. So it's kind of a love-hate thing. It, 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 Facebook still, I still feel like it suppresses me. And I, I don't know that it's the content as much as it's trying to bribe me into paying them to spread my shit. Boost this post. I'm never going to, no. But long way to say, yeah, go check out the Facebook page if you want to see some of those. The YouTube page, Tonzilla X over there, once again at YouTube, has a lot more of these things. Uh, they're not burning up the charts or anything like that. My stuff isn't <laughs> mass appeal if you haven't figured that out yet. Uh, but they're over there. And if it's something you, you know, you feel like if you've considered maybe telling somebody else about this podcast, you want to give them an idea of what I'm talking about with the propaganda stuff, a lot of tribalism stuff up there from the last episode. Uh, I got a couple of more that I haven't done yet from there as well. Consider sending them one of those things. If you like the podcast, it's a great way to, you know, just throw something into your feed and uh, say, here, check this out. Check this guy out. Not only is he handsome, he's got uh, an interesting take on the state of things. Uh, or you can pass it along to pick on me if you want. This guy's an asshole. Check this dickhead out. No press is bad press. Great. Small piece of housekeeping here from the last podcast. A couple of notes I made while I was uh, in the process of editing the video out. Things I, I kind of wish that I had added uh, when I was recording uh, a couple of weeks ago. First thing I got here, I was talking about the ethnic neighborhoods, right? Tribalism, how people like to congregate with people who are like they are. And I was mentioning the ethnic neighborhoods in like Chicago, in New York City, uh, San Francisco. One of the things that occurred to me is that I could have put small town America, the rednecks, in that list. When you talk about small town America, why couldn't you consider that an ethnic neighborhood? Right? These people congregating amongst themselves with like people. You see it in Chicago. You see it in New York City. You see it in San Francisco. Why can't you see it in BFE? Why is it that these people are always deemed to be racist because they choose to live with each other? They're not stopping anybody from moving in there, just as nobody's stopping anybody from moving into Little Italy. Small town white people, that's where they either were born or a lot of people have left. We live in one of those towns right now. We lived in Chicago uh, six years ago, and we now live in a small what a lot of people would call, I'd call it a hick town here in Southwest Michigan. Are we racist because we decided to move to this small town? I don't understand why it's just, you know, it's a, it's a culturally vibrant neighborhood when a bunch of, you know, Latinos or Italians or even blacks decide that they want to congregate together in these cities. But somehow these people in these small towns, these white people in these small towns, well, the only reason they live that way is because they're racist. I don't understand that disconnect. I'm absolutely lying when I say that. I understand that disconnect perfectly well. Something else that I uh, failed to mention, I had thought about this beforehand. I just didn't put it in the podcast. It skipped my mind when I was talking about unity via division. Breaking people down into these smaller little groups, cleaving them off from the bigger body of people. There's other ways to do that other than just race, gender. Another one that I'm going to talk a lot more about is populism. Populism is economic 
tribalism. The rich versus the poor. The original populism, maybe, I don't know if it was the original popular, probably not. I guess it goes all the way back probably to the French Revolution and before. But the uh, most famous example, I think, of toxic uh, populism was Russia during the revolution using the moneyed bourgeois as the scapegoat. We have this everywhere and it comes from both sides of the political spectrum. Populism is another example of tribalism. It's another example of us versus them with its own genre of agitprop, agitation propaganda, intentionally riling people up. Tune in CNN for a couple of minutes this weekend, I believe, and saw Bernie Sanders. He is one of the worst purveyors of economic tribalism. The 99% versus the 1%. He's always talking about corporate greed. Oh, my God. Is there some truth to it? Yeah, of course. But I, this takes you back to the Russian Revolution. The money bourgeois, the poor going out, eat the rich, kill the rich. I guess several years ago, I probably was considered a populist. Uh, I, I appreciate the discussion about income inequality and the, the division between labor and business and all. I, I get all of that. I'm not completely unsympathetic to it, but I've also seen what, read what, and seen a little bit of what populism does to people. Huey Long was a populist. Donald Trump, believe it or not, is a populist. There's populism coming from both directions. There always has been. In fact, there's another level of populism at play when you have people who are reacting to identity politics. They're talking about equity within the black and Latino communities, the minority communities, the, uh, what's the word they always use, the um, marginalized communities. Well, there's a populism coming from the other way in response to that. Well, what about us? What about our economic interests? You want to come to the Rust Belt. I was telling my friend this the other day. You know, yeah, you've got all of this uh, stuff on the news about Hawaii right now. People are complaining that we send billions and billions and billions of dollars to the military industrial complex to support Ukraine or whoever else, while people in Hawaii lost everything. We can't, what are they sending them? 700 bucks? I don't know. There's that same kind of response when you start talking about marginalized communities coming from people who have seen their jobs evaporate, especially around here in the auto industry. These factories that I'm, I worked in myself 30 years ago before I left, small town America just to come back. <laughs> but a lot of those people lost their jobs. They saw those jobs go away. A lot of them went to Mexico. A lot of them went overseas. And then you start talking about equity for minorities and marginalized communities. These people are like, wait a minute. So you can do all that for the, what do we, why aren't you doing anything for us? Why is it that I'm a greeter at Walmart when I had a union job or whatever 25 years ago, making all kinds of money, the kind of money that I could live really well on in these small towns and retire, that job dried up. Now I'm working at Walmart, but you want to tell me about how bad these people have it? Economic tribalism. We need to send billions and billions of dollars to these marginalized community while Bubba down here lost his job. His factory went to Mexico. Economic tribalism, populism. I'm going to talk a lot more about that. I, 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 
I have to kind of get myself on an even keel with this. this uh, I don't want to fly off the handle prematurely. I might anyway. I talked about, in the last podcast, the highest feasible level, anyway, of tribalism. The nation. Patriotism. Rallying yourself as a group, feeling a connection to a national group. In a nutshell, that is patriotism. A lot of you know, you probably can't help but know because I mentioned it enough, I've traveled all over the place. Hitchhiking, I started backpacking around Latin America in 2011. I've personally seen Mexico, El Salvador, Honduras, Nicaragua, Guatemala, Panama. Got to Colombia a couple of times, been to Peru a few times. Seen these places uh, naked and personal, up close, not literally naked. I've seen those places. They, the country was naked. <laughs> not me. I don't even like to shower down there. Most of those places don't even have hot water, for Christ's sakes. Have you ever taken a shower in with one of those uh, electric water heaters that are like built into the shower head or something like that? Or have like this, oh my God. I was in this place. I think it was probably in uh, Guatemala. I take it a shower, and the, the the water doesn't run out. It's fucking wonderful. But I'm in there like doing the rub a dub dub thing and getting like electric pokes. I'm like touching myself. Like, ah! While I'm taking a shower, I half expected to uh, <laughs> end up on the floor flopping around like a fucking fish and have Maria come in to change my sheets, and there I am rotting in the shower. I didn't, but notice I didn't get out of the shower. I finished it because most of these places down there, they do not have hot showers. It's terrible. There is nothing in the fucking world worse than a cold shower. I don't care. I do not care. Hot water and soft fucking beds without bed bugs are wonderful things. Trust me on this. Actually, this kind of ties into what I'm going to talk about here. That wasn't a complete tangent. <laughs> I've seen these places down there. I love Latin America, but by God, oh boy. Other things I meant would be illegals, people who are getting ready to come into the United States illegally. And I've also met the coyotes who were running people from as far south as uh, Honduras to uh, Texas, Arizona, California. I met these people. They were talking. They were openly, I'm going, I'm going to go. And this other guy that I met in uh, Rio Dulce, I got a video on this. Uh, he'd been, he said, he claimed, I have no reason not to believe him, and he's the kind of guy that I'm not going to challenge it anyway. I would half expect to be thrown in the river dead. A lot of mentioning of death in this. Anyway, yeah, he uh, claimed to be uh, uh, deported from the United States several times. But he was somebody who was one of those coyotes who would take these illegals, North through Mexico, get them to the border and let them cross. I have talked to these folks. I still support immigration. I still support even to a small degree uh, 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 limited illegal immigration because I have seen how these folks live. I have seen it with these eyeballs. It's not an abstract concept to me. And I know 
I know for a fact that if I were living in those conditions and I were struggling to raise a family, like I've seen these people struggling to raise their families, if I had an opportunity to go north and get into the United States, I know damn well I would do it. It would be hypocritical of me to say, no, you shouldn't do this because uh, illegal. What does our legality mean to somebody who can't feed their kids down there? What would it mean to you? You better think long and hard about that before you answer. Answer honestly. You go look your kids in the eyes. A lot of you probably have grown kids by now, so you might have to go back. Maybe, maybe think a little Johnny when he's like six years old. Look into those six-year-old eyes in your mind and ask yourself if little Johnny was having trouble getting food because there's no income, maybe there's gangs, whatever else, and you had a chance to take little Johnny from Tegucigalpa to Tallahassee, would you do it? You're kind of caught there, aren't you? Because if you wouldn't do it, you're kind of a bad parent, aren't you? Oh, we've got to respect those laws. Well, I guess, Johnny, you're going to have to go hungry. Malnutrition's okay because we must... Res we, there's this whole thing. Is it ethical to steal if your child is starving? This whole sort of moral thought exercise or whatever. But what about this? I mean, this is right down the same line. And most people think it's okay if you have a starving child to steal. But yet, you're telling me you expect me to believe... If they think it's okay for you to go steal from someone, it's not okay to violate a fucking border law? Really? Now, criminals, rapists, terrorists, stuff like that, obviously, we're on the same page there. But how many of these people are really criminals? How many of these people are really rapists and terrorists? Conservatives have an issue here that if they would just sort of loosen up the reins a little bit with the xenophobic overtones, Latinos are in your wheelbasket culturally. Do you know anything about machismo culture? It sure as hell isn't woke. I'm going to tell you that right now. You can figure out a way to come to common sense immigration reform. A relatively easy pathway in, as long as they don't have a criminal record, not rapists and terrorists, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I get it. And loosen up on the xenophobic sort of anti-immigrant rhetoric. I dare say you'd get 75% of the Latino vote. Because everything, that they're, they're wildly religious. They're anti-abortion. <laughs> they, they, everything. Right in your in your bread basket. I've never understood. I've been saying this for shit, at least since uh, 2011, probably longer than that, because I lived in the Southwest, lived in Santa Fe. I understand this. They like money. They don't like government interference either. Oh boy, I am full of tangents tonight, aren't I? <laughs> Let me get back to what I was going to talk about. Talking about running. Uh, yeah, I've been down to these countries down in Central America. Seen Managua, Tegucigalpa, San Pedro Sula, the murder capital of the world, or at least the Western Hemisphere, I think. 
Been to Lima, Guatemala City, Cusco, a few other places. Panama City, did I put that on there? Panama City is really nice. Was also questioned by automatic weapon-wielding soldiers while having my passport scrutinized. Scrutinized. Uh, while the bus was stopped in the middle of the jungle in the middle of the night. I think that happened in Nicaragua. You want to you wanna get a, a wake-up call? You want to get a glass of ice water to the face coming from the United States of America? You want a wake-up call? Go to Nicaragua. Oh, you can get in. And you can travel around, but you need to watch what you say. I was told several times while I was in uh, Leon to watch what I say in emails home. Locals, natives, people who had lived there their whole lives, understood who the Sandinistas were. Watch what you say in your emails home because Big Brother is watching. Seeing the third world firsthand quickly changed my attitude toward this country. In a similar way that uh, traveling to Nicaragua was that ice water to the face as far as appreciating where I came from. When I first flew south in January of 2011, I was force-fed perspective on a daily basis. I was forced by a basic sense of intellectual dignity to take Howard Zinn and Michael Moore and throw them where they belong into the intellectual trash bin. That was a result of trusting my eyes instead of someone's ideological scripture and being able to think my way through it instead of doing the post hoc reasoning thing. Well, Howard Zinn said this, so maybe my eyes are deceiving me. Maybe I should look at this from his perspective and just ignore what's going on in my own fucking head. No. And something else happened. This is a significant uh, moment that I didn't expect. It's, it's almost like, uh, I wouldn't call it li um, life-changing, but it sort of introduced me to myself in a way. We're down in Mexico, sitting in a hostel. Guy I was traveling with joins in with all of these other tra travelers, a lot of Europeans, but a few Latin Americans, sort of the Che Guevara types, right? And is just going off on bashing the United States. He's an American. Joining in with all of these other people, he was the only one who was there. Everybody else was for him, but they were all having a field day bashing this country. And I'm sitting over here, just like, huh. It really pissed me off. It was almost like watching, I don't know, if you have a brother, you're out maybe at a restaurant, <laughs> hanging around with your brother or your cousin or I don't know, whatever, but some member of your family, right? talking to some other family, and bashing your own, talking bad about your parents, bad about your sister. Maybe, she's calling your, maybe he's calling your sister a whore. Right? Like, what the fuck are you doing, dude? I didn't expect that. This, again, is on the heels of this Howard Zinn phase that I had... <laughs> you know, Michael Moore. I think I am I, a little... Um, I'm a little misleading about that sometimes because I, is, I have always railed against the far left. I was never really entrenched in that, but I did read Howard Zinn. I was a fan of Michael Moore's work. I thought he actually did documentaries at one point instead of long-form propaganda. <laughs> Who was it? Al Gore, An Inconvenient Truth. It was all about some of that, but I, I just I really didn't like the really far left. I hated hippies. I have always despised hippies. But even so, I did not, that surprised me how offended 
That's the only word for it. I was offended by this American sitting there with these other travelers, these foreigners, bashing this country. It bugged me severely. It sort of shaded the friendship after that. This is something about you, buddy, that I really I don't feel like I can abide. If you're going to do that, don't do it around me. I think that was the kind of attitude. He never did. He never, to his credit, if he did, he toned it down. I think it's safe to say he is off in commie land these days. He won't admit it. It's funny. And it's funny how a lot of these folks, these really far left, these real radical leftists, are communists in everything but name. It's almost as though they think if they don't say Marxist, if they don't say communist, well, then I'm not really a communist and I'm not really a Marxist. If I don't say it, <laughs> if I close my eyes, I'm not it. If it walks like a commie, talks like a commie, and has a hammer and sickle on its wall like a commie, it's a commie, right? Come on. I'm going to finish this. One other thing I was going to say about that, the, 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 the bashing of his own country down there in Latin America, I very rarely see other nationalities doing that. I mean, Germans are weird because... They traditionally, when I've run into them anyway, again, I haven't traveled down there since 2018, but they have this really, they can't show national pride. Like, I think they won the World Cup or some shit, and they were afraid to celebrate winning the World Cup because showing German nationalist pride is like a sin because of World War I and World War II. They're afraid of being called Nazis. I was like, what the hell's the matter with you? You just won the fucking World Cup. Celebrate. Show some pride. No, we can't do that. Yay, Deutschland. That's all they would do. It's bizarre. Show some pride, Germany, for fuck's sakes. Not too much, though. <laughs> no, I never saw it. Never saw any other uh, nationalities really doing that. Come see Finland. Finland's great. I'd like to go see Sweden, Denmark. People that I met from Sweden and Denmark, boy, interesting as fuck. I do a video on this. If I do a video on this, I'll add the, uh, I'm going to put this in as a little note to myself. Add uh, work, work. As I was thinking about this uh, before the show today, it reminded me of this uh, George Orwell quote. It's kind of famous. I think it's from um, England, My England, or England, Your England. I forget the name of the essay. It's really short. You can find it pretty much anywhere. I know it's online. But this is the quote from George Orwell that reminded me of that experience and maybe reminded me a little bit of that um, reaction that I had. Well, one cannot see the modern world as it is unless one recognizes the overwhelming strength of patriotism, national loyalty. In certain circumstances, it can break down, like at a hostel in Latin America. At certain levels of civilization, it does not exist. But as a positive force, positive force, there is nothing to set beside it. Christianity and international socialism are as weak as as straw in comparison with it. 
And he continues to say that Hitler and Mussolini rose to power in their own countries very largely because they could grasp this fact and their opponents could not. Written by George Orwell, he was writing this, yeah, yeah, during World War II, he was writing it during the London raids. I think the, the essay, I think it opens up by saying that people are bombing the city and trying to kill me. I think that's the very first line in the essay. He's absolutely right. As a positive force, nothing. Religion? Mm-mm. International socialism? No, it can't compete with patriotic pride. And this, this has always been the case, and this is why I keep harping about the insurgency, the invasive species, and why I keep talking about how socialism, how wokeism, is trying to attack and eradicate the established religion, the established order in this country. Because it has to undermine that one thing that George Orwell's talking about right here, patriotism. Love of country. This high-level tribalism that I was talking about in the last episode. It can't do anything if that's in place. They have to create this jackass sitting at a hostel in Latin America. Not just bad-mouthing, but feeling like it's appropriate to bad-mouth his own country. You don't see, I just said it, you don't see other countries doing that. Why? Because it's under attack in this country, it has been for a long time. People have seen this anti-Americanism, hate America, uh, Americans to blame for everything. This is the, the agitprop at work to undermine, to eradicate, to tear into the foundation of American patriotism. Because if it's intact and it's strong, International socialism, and that's what this is, because this sure as fuck isn't coming from here. It's an invasive species. International socialism can't touch <laughs> American patriotism. That is one of the biggest things that's under attack. The cohesive narrative and the foundational myth is that, I guess it all falls under this blanket. National pride, that's patriotism. But basic patriotism... You can't touch it. You cannot touch it anywhere. You have to kill it. You have to kill it because it's far more cohesive, durable, and potent than the fragmented micro-identity or micro-tribalism of identity politics. And worse, the economic, I was talking about this before, the economic tribalism of populism. I guess you can, you know, fragment people off and you can try to divide people, put people at each other's throats. You can do that through the economic a tribalism, a populism at the same time while you're attacking the established religion of patriotism. You can do that at the same time. But if patriotism is this powerful, is this potent, <laughs> I wish you all the luck in the world with that global citizenry shit, Moonbeam. <laughs> I, I, how is that going to work? Are you going to move like the like the Borg? Or what is, what is it? Maybe it's like that... that uh, 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 alien race in Independence Day. They go from one planet to one, from this planet to the next planet, chewing up patriotism, <laughs> attacking it until you, you finally dominate Earth with the brotherhood of man socialism. I'll say this again. If you want unity in a diverse nation, that's going to be best achieved via patriotism. The flag, 
Collectivism is always powerless against the power of patriotism, something they always fail to understand. Socialists, leftists, far leftists, these collectivists, they never understand that. Hitler and the various leftist factions back in the, in the uh, 1930s, they were at each other's throats. People were trying to knock Hitler out of the, out of the political arena early on in the 1930s, but they were always fighting with each other. Oh, we got to be communists. No, we should be socially democratic. And blah, 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 blah. Well, Hitler just cleaned, cleaned, cleaned house because these groups could not come together. And Hitler had an intense nationalistic, a patriotic message after uh, the Treaty of Versailles and after what had happened in that country in the 1920s. He had a lot to work with. Make Germany great again. Right? I'm going to talk more about this, but the Indian tribes. Factional self-interest instead of a single unified front. <sighs> Joining forces against a clear and present danger. This is one of the reasons why leftism and identity politics, in the end, is not durable. It never lasts. Even when it gets its little talons dug in, it always fails. It's based on the contradictory notion of unity via fragmented narcissism. Unity via division, not just unity, unity via division, but unity via fragmented narcissism. Is there anything less unifying than chronic widespread narcissism? It's doomed to fail because it's going to cannibalize itself. They're going to throw all of these people into these little camps based on self-interest, on narcissism, on, oh, my oppression, my, 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 my oppression. <laughs> and then you, you expect these camps to come together. Oh, forget your oppression. Well, that's integration prop. Maybe that's, hmm, integration propaganda. Should I talk about that? Maybe that's the, the goal for later on, once you've blown everything up. <laughs> it doesn't make any fucking sense. You're collectivists for fuck's sakes. You're shoving everybody into these different camps, telling them that they're the world's greatest victim. My, my, my oppression. We have any musicians out there? I'd like to have that song. My, 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 my oppression. I don't think you got to get like the rights from the knack or anything, do you? It will cannibalize itself in the end. <laughs> Whose oppression takes takes precedent? Whose oppression takes precedent? Say that three times fast. Whose oppression takes precedent? <laughs> Leftism always cannibalizes itself in the end. Identity politics, especially in a diverse nation. Now, economic populism, eh, you, might, you, you might get a little further, which is why it's always part, I guess, of the leftist uh, playbook. But identity politics in a, a nation as diverse as this, it's bound to implode these groups have to turn on and cannibalize each other. The revolution will eat its young. It has to. Because it's based on my oppression. Well, what about my oppression? Fuck your oppression. It's my oppression. God damn it. <laughs> Conservatives, you have to start pushing back on this eventually. But you have the advantage. You're always going to have the advantage. Patriotism, the fundamental culture, you got to be smart about it, but don't make the mistake that I was talking about with the Indians and these leftists in Germany. 
see the clear and present danger, cooperate to push it back in the metaphorical sea. That's what the Indians in Massachusetts failed to do. Not only here. They didn't do it in time. Pontiac's time. I got a lot coming up on that. I mentioned that book yet? Eckert's book? I think I did. These Indians couldn't get past their own tribalism. They were just these little isolated bands who were easy to defeat because they were not unified. They tried a few times. A few people tried. Pontiac tried. He had some success. Tecumseh. Forgot the guy's name in uh, Massachusetts. Massasoit? Is that it? No, he was the ally. The guy I'm thinking of, I'm probably butchering that name, but I think he's the one that actually allied with uh, Plymouth. Because I think he was, his tribe was weakened by disease. And he thought that the other tribes were going to attack him down in Rhode Island. So he made friends with Plymouth. This is what I'm talking about. You're so worried about your Indian brothers over here. And these guys worried about these guys over here. And they're worried about you. That you fail to realize that you need to join forces to come together against the real threat. That would have been us. What happened? How did that work out? Again, I'll take you back to Germany. The communists and the social democrats. They, they couldn't have, find the cohesion required, the cooperation required to organize an effective counterattack against Adolf fucking Hitler. You're fighting over supremacy while Hitler... Don't make that mistake. That's part of the reason I'm doing this podcast and part of the reason I'm willing to take this anti-woke uh, tone. I am not a Trump fan. I, I don't consider myself a loyal conservative. You folks have been friends with me for a long time. My politics hasn't changed all that much. It has on some things. It has, you know, it's changed. But not that much. What's changed is those fuckers. I'm not going to make the mistake that the, uh, the Indians made. I'm not going to make the mistake that the, the, the German leftists made in the 1930s. I see the clear and present danger. I know who I need to cooperate with. And these fuckers push back into Cape Cod on their way back to the Leiden Colony in Holland. <laughs> then we'll have a discussion about what we're going to do moving forward. I may not be your loyal ally in 10 years after that. We may have some things to butt heads on. Then. Not right now. We'll deal with that later on. Be like the, the communists and the social democrats back, back yonder way. And they succeeded in shoving Hitler off into history's dustbin before 6 million Jews were killed and the world was drug into the Second World War. Yeah, well, they can fight it all out later on, right? Well, that's what we'll do. But until then, I see the clear and present danger over there. I think you do too. I think you've seen it a lot longer than I have, actually. But that is who we need to focus on right now. As far as I'm concerned. That whole tangent I just went on about uh, the Indians and coming together and all that. I did a little book report uh, a couple of years ago. Actually, in uh, 2020. Nathaniel Philbrick, the book is called uh, Mayflower. 
I first, I didn't know anything about Prince Philip before I lived in Massachusetts. There's this thing called uh, King Philip's Bridge. I'm like, what the fuck have we got a King's Bridge over here for? Well, King Philip, he was an Indian leader who uh, fought a war against and lost against the uh, English settlers in Massachusetts. We could have been pushed back into the ocean. I'm not saying we would have stayed away. I, we're pretty tenacious, especially in those days. I don't think being pushed back into Cape Cod would have done much. I think we would have came back in force, or someone would have anyway. But as far as the Indians are concerned, they had us. We were Half of our colony died in Plymouth in the first winter. Starved to death because they couldn't feed themselves, for fuck's sakes. As soon as they figured out what the, the gringos' intentions were, they had the capacity and the capability to push us back into the bay, back, get us off of their land. They could not cooperate enough to get it done. That's the big lesson here for me. You study history to learn from it. It's the same thing with the, the Hitler and the, the leftists, the leftist resistance or opposition, I guess, in the early 30s. It's the same fucking lesson. It's the lesson of really of identity politics, if you think about it. Because identity politics in this scenario is the various tribes on the plains. The failure of these tribes to come together at that higher level of tribalism. To see themselves as one unit to confront the clear and present danger. Not only did that doom the Indians, I think it's also, I was talking about this before, I'm probably just repeating myself here, but that's going to be the cannibalistic end of leftism in this country if, and only if, the opposition the moderates, the sensible moderates, the sensible fucking liberals as well. Anybody who's not a Vichy white, I suppose. But only if those people, the centrists, the moderates, the people who like free speech, the people who think that DEI is an intellectual abortion, the people that know that women are the ones who give birth, they have to stay unified against this. And they also have to protect Patriotism. They have to stand up for their country, for their country's ideals in the face of this onslaught. They can't let these ideological colonizers tear the temples down, tear the religion down, and start erecting their own temples to their cosmic god of social justice, subjective social justice. But if you can do that, oh yeah, it's a waiting game because it will happen. These tribes will turn on each other or at least leave each other isolated off in the hinterlands, right? You see this happening within, I think it's like the, the feminist movement or the maybe it's the BLM thing, but white women aren't really, they don't get it. They're not real feminists. There's something down, I can't remember. I, I, this is just like, an, like a whisper in my brain, but I've seen this a hundred times. It's like black feminists attacking white feminists. This is what I'm talking about. <laughs> white feminists are the problem. Hmm? There's hope. This isn't sausage party hope either. 
because it's built in. It's built into wokeism. It's built into identity politics. Fragmenting tribalism. If you're preaching about, like an idiot, about both identity politics and unity, as I was talking about at the last podcast, like, come together. Yeah, segregate us into identity tribes and then preach about coming together. What the fuck are you talking about? Well, <laughs> how are they going to bring themselves together? It's a waiting game, but we have to survive and we have to advocate. We have to advocate for our own country and our own country's principles. Individualism, free speech, the right not to believe, the freedom of religion, yes, but also the freedom from religion, regardless of what form it comes in, including the ideological variety. This is my book report. I wrote it up. I don't. I actually wrote it up. I think it's a Facebook post. Uh, it's like two and a half pages long, front and back here. So, uh, uh. I like it. I, I dug this out. I'd forgotten about it. I'd printed it up because I thought I'd do something here on the podcast with it a couple of years ago. I never did, but it was in one of my books over there. And I'm gonna I'm gonna do this, but I'm also <clears throat> not not gonna do it today. But I've also uh, got the uh, seeds of a longer one. Oh, I didn't talk about that. This trip that I took to Mackinac City into the UP uh, one of the very first things I did, in fact, it was. It was windy. It was cold. We, we didn't really want to drive across the bridge. It was like 50-mile-an-hour winds that day. So we went to Fort Michelin-Mackinac in Mackinac City. A wildly historic fort. I don't know that I knew it existed up until maybe a couple of years ago. I sure as hell didn't know where it was. It's right at the base of the bridge, right at the tip of the lower peninsula. I mean, it's almost literally, not quite, but almost literally right under the Mackinac Bridge. Colonial Michelin-Mackinac. And it's rebuilt. Uh, the English, well, the French had it first. Then they had to cede it to the, the, the English. This is a great story. It's all covered in this book, The Conquerors. That's what it's called by Eckert. And then uh, the English uh, decided, well, we don't want it here anymore. We're going to take all our shit and go to Mackinac Island. And they built another fort over there. Uh, and when they did, they burnt the original Fort Michelin Mackinac. They just burnt it. But... All of that shit's still buried underground, like the, the remnants of that old fort, the charred remnants of it, and a whole shit. They had, they've gotten like well over a million artifacts, I think, from that site. And they've rebuilt the uh, some of the buildings based on the archaeological evidence buried in the ground. It's fan-fucking-tastic. I kind of jokingly said when I got back here that uh, <laughs> I went to that fort. To connect with my colonizing ancestors. Kind of said that as like a poke prod kind of thing, but that's not entirely sarcastic. My family came, my dad's family came into Quebec. They're French-Canadian. They came over in the 1600s and settled along the St. Lawrence Seaway. One of the original settlers from France. And my mother's side, I've talked about this before. I've got uh, like, I think four of the original Mayflower uh, 
passengers are in my direct uh, lineage. Ancestors of mine. I come from some pretty adventurous fucking stock. It kind of explains the wanderlust a little bit. It helps. But I'm not ashamed of that. And I'm really getting sick and fucking tired of being told that I should be. Our ancestors, mine in particular, but probably yours as well, if they came over here to this country from Europe with nothing and started to settle on the fucking frontier, that book, The Conquerors, this is going to go into this little little, little uh, dissertation that I'm going to write on it. But the shit that they endured, it's amazing. That was the predominant thought, I think, that I had. One of the predominant thought that, thoughts that I had outside of the history of Michelin Mackinac was I'm looking around here, and I know what winters are like up there. Right, this is uh, four hours north on Lake Michigan. It's like right on the Straits of Mackinac. And over here is Lake Huron, over here is Lake Michigan. But you're up there, you're in the north. The winters there are fucking brutal. And I got, I'm thinking to myself, man, I, I was telling my father-in-law and my, my wife the same thing. Like, you look at what they did here. They built all of this shit by hand and they didn't have furnaces. And they're spending the winter here with, with Indians who really don't like them all that much. These people were amazing. The tenacity. I mean, the balls of which I can't comprehend. I don't think I can comprehend it. Not adequately. And that's just one story. That is just one story. The people coming through on the, uh, the St. Lawrence Seaway into wilderness land, having to clear land, build a cabin with their bare freaking hands, having to plant and hunt food. There's no roads. What are you going to do if you got to leave? <laughs> you don't just turn around and go home from Cancun. <laughs> these were some serious badasses and I am immensely proud of that I am immensely proud to have that in my biological rearview mirror on both sides and I'm sick and tired of being told that I should be ashamed of it when you're reading The Conquerors I think it's towards the end they're talking about how the uh, Indians were basically waging a terrorist campaign on the settlers in the frontier land, which back then would have been western Pennsylvania. So they'd ride in and they'd kill families. They'd uh, just butcher children, women, whatever. It was a terrorist campaign, kind of like ISIS. We want to scare you because we want you to get the fuck off our land. Can you imagine living in those conditions? And they dug their heels in. Some left. Some, yeah, fuck this. I'm out of here. I'm going to Philadelphia. But oh, we're still here. So in the face of that, in the face of atrocities being attacked by Indians, these were not soldiers. These were settlers. These were families with, <laughs> with children who had built their homes by themselves more, most often, developed their own land. They stayed. They dug their heels in, and the, that is some badassery that we cannot know. We cannot comprehend that these days. 
And you, the people who get triggered by pronoun usage, cultural appropriation, these cunts want me to be ashamed of that? <laughs> I got news for you. No, I'm not. I'm pretty goddamn proud of it, actually. And I should be. You should be. We all should be. We come from badass stock. We have to remember that. We have to remember that and not let the narrative, the foundational, the cohesive narrative, be hijacked because what's replacing it is not accurate. Yeah, I am not going to be... <laughs> I am not going to be told by some snot-nosed little college kid who gets triggered and needs an emotional support animal to wander 10 feet away from their safe space because the professor gave him an idea he didn't like. I'm not going to have that <laughs> tell me to be ashamed of my badass, badass ancestors. This is something else, too. I'll wrap up on this. I think I've gone far enough today. Pretty much all ad-lib today. Hey, one page. I was kind of worried cracking the mic today, firing this thing up that I wasn't going to have enough. I've got plenty. All I have to do is get going. And when it comes to these kids, that we have them, you're going to have to stay with me here. It's a good reflection on this country. I want you to compare. Uh, give me a prototypical, fragile, frail little college kid who, who has to have a support animal and a safe space to be protected from mean ideas and ideas he doesn't like and speakers that he doesn't like. I want you to picture this thing, right? And then I want you to picture what I was talking about at Fort Michelin Mackinac. That guy or woman. There weren't very many women up there. <laughs> but go ahead if you need to. The progression from these people in Mackinac, these settlers, these tenacious, ballsy settlers, to this didn't just happen overnight. We've been hearing this with every single generation. This generation has it so easy. When we were kids, we had blah, 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 blah. Every generation feels it's been that way uh, since time immemorial. Every generation thinks that the next generation is soft. They're right. They're absolutely right. That's a good thing. Progress makes life better. People have less to complain about. They have less to do. They have less to worry about. There's less struggle. This goes back to Dostoevsky. I talked about this. I've talked about a number of times. The struggle. How people need a struggle. That once people don't have it, they will manufacture it. Because people need to be working towards something. Utopia. I've talked. This is, I'm going to come back to this. Stay with me on this when I get there. Because it's not going to happen today. But utopia will fail. This is the Dostoevsky thing. Utopia will fail. Because we will sabotage it. Even if you could create it. Because people will get fucking bored. They'll have nothing 
to really do, no sense of meaning. Purpose drives something to struggle towards. This is why people climb mountains. These activists, what are they going to do once they get there? <laughs> They're going to be the first ones to sabotage it, to have something to do, to have something to fight for. Now, this is good. It's a good reflection on the society that these tender, fragile little children really want to complain about so much. They don't have to worry about Indians coming and scalping their kids. They don't have to worry about typhoid. They have it really, really good. They have it so good that now they're trying to, their, their survival instinct, this need for purpose, this need for meaning is on Rome. And it's finding the first thing that it could grab onto. And that's being fed to them, provided to them. I mean, you could look at it like, you know, this big mystery, like this generation's, oh my God, I don't understand it. Well, it really, is it that hard to understand? Look around us. We complain a lot. All of us complain a lot. Me less so because I have been to the third world. I, I'll go back to that. That was a huge experience for me. It was a huge perspective builder going to Latin America because I saw how bad it can be. And I came back here and I appreciated it. We do not have the struggle that our parents had. These kids don't have the struggles that we had when we were younger. Their kids, Jesus Christ, they may have to live in a bubble. But it's a sign of society's progress. Every generation is softer because every generation has had some or many of the problems of the previous generation solved for them because of progress. Is anybody getting polio these days? AIDS. You remember how big AIDS was in the 1980s? And it's still a thing, obviously, but... No. So, a little path to... A small little path to empathy for our fragile, frail... Children who can't stand mean, bad ideas. They don't like anything that counters what they learned at Tampax U. I could go on. Maybe I should. I don't think I will. <clears throat> I want you to check out that YouTube channel if you haven't. I mentioned it at the outset. Tanzilla X over there at YouTube. Got a couple more clips from last week. One in particular on the... Uh, uh, independent thought thing. Meant to do that today. I got started really late. And I was worried I wasn't going to get anything done, so I just sat down and did this. But I'm going to try to get that out. And there's one other one that, uh, I don't know, look for those from episode number 126. I think this is 127. Might be 128 if I break this up. I don't know how I'm going to do it. But Tanzilla X over at YouTube, the Facebook page, Escaping the Cave over there. Um, I have anything else? Oh, the Substack site. Go ahead and subscribe over there. Share the podcast. If you like this podcast, it's important that you share it because <laughs> Facebook and YouTube and all these other places, they're not going to help me. They don't like my content. <laughs> Go figure. So it's up to you. If you like it, think the meaning, the, the message is good, give it to somebody. Help me out. Anything else? I don't think so. 
Thank you so much for tuning in. We'll talk to you next time. So long.